Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald. Today, we continue our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. The Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place at noon on Wednesdays in the Ina Dillard Russell Library on the campus of Georgia College in downtown Milledgeville. These events are free and open to the public, so if this discussion sparks your interest, please consider joining the conversation at noon on Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. On today's edition of the Times Talk and Georgia College Connections, we're previewing the conversation, How Has Habitat for Humanity Affected Local Housing Needs? Joining me in the WRGC studios are Morali Thermal, Executive Director of the Habitat for Humanity Milledgeville Baldwin County, and Dr. John Salstrom, Habitat for Humanity Milledgeville Baldwin County, founding board member and board member emeritus. Gentlemen, I want to welcome you all to the WRGC studios. Thank, Thank you, you for, for inviting us. us. It is my pleasure to have you all here. Of course, we're talking about Habitat for Humanity, an international organization started here in our own state of Georgia, but with a local affiliate right here in the Milledgeville, Baldwin County community. As we were discussing earlier, this is the 25th anniversary of this local chapter of the Habitat for Humanity. So I want to thank you all for bringing this conversation to the Times Talk, but also bringing it here for our radio audience to WRGC. We're happy to be here and support you and the cause in any which way to bring awareness to this very critical subject. Excellent. Well, I think that Habitat for Humanity is well known. I feel that I know about it, but I don't want to feel that way for our audience members. Uh, so what better t- opportunity to ask than y'all gentlemen, oh, what is Habitat for Humanity? All right. Well, I think I'll start off by saying uh, the founding of Habitat and, and what Habitat is all about goes back into the 60s uh, to the founding of this organization where Millard Fuller and his colleagues and his core group decided that they wanted to eliminate poverty housing across the globe. Uh, And I think they built their first house in Zaire. And then Millard Fuller and his wife, Linda, moved to Americas and actually started uh, uh, a farm or, or actually partnered with a farm that was already there and Queen Anua Farms that still exists there. That was ground zero for a biblically based philosophy to help eliminate poverty by building houses. And uh, that's my two cents, and I'm sure Dr. Salstrom can say that better. Millard Fuller, uh, who started Habitat was actually a very uh, prosperous lawyer, but his marriage was falling apart and his life was not what he had hoped it would be. And he spent some time on uh, Cornelia Farm in Americas uh, visiting with Clarence Jordan, the founder of that. And that's where they actually started building the first houses. Later on, he did go to Zaire and then came back to uh, Americas where they set up the international headquarters. One of Millard's first books was titled uh, No More Shacks, and he was very struck by the fact that everywhere he went, especially in this part of the country, so many people were living in shacks, and he felt the need for decent, adequate housing for everyone. And the best way to do that would be to partner with folks to give them uh, houses that they could afford by not charging any interest. And that was a biblical concept that he drew upon. 
And then he gradually expanded that to become an international organization, which has spread throughout the world. Perhaps the most famous volunteer in that group has been Jimmy Carter. And you may have seen recently that at the age of 95, he was still out volunteering, building a house. He didn't start Habitat, but he's the most famous volunteer and probably the face of Habitat to many folks. But Miller Fuller was the one that started it. And then he gave the rationale for it in a book called The Theology of the Hammer, where basically he said that we might disagree on many different things, but we could all agree on using our skills to do something together to improve the housing conditions for many folks that uh, were living in inadequate situations. And why shelter? I mean, there are many needs that we all have, community, food, clothing. Why is this the core of a Habitat for Humanity, or is it? Well, that's where we live. We Mm -hmm. have to live in a decent place. The people that uh, don't have decent housing, they have less chance of living well and getting a good education, getting good jobs. So the housing is very important. It's very important for children to grow up in a safe place instead of a place that's rat-infested or full of bugs. And it's very difficult for children to have to survive in a place unless they have a, a decent home. And statistically, we know that children who are raised in a safe environment, in a safe home, perform so much better in schools. If they perform so much better in schools, they are going to be much better contributing citizens. We also know that children who come from homes that are unsafe, uh, growing up in areas that are drug-infested, violence-infested, turn out to be unable to cope with their adult lives. I mean, this this is not statistically concocted, but rather studied and agreed upon. The house is where you live, as Dr. Salstrom pointed out. If you can provide a safe, affordable house to children, adults, it's too late, Well, they are already adults, right? We are producing better citizens for our state, for our local areas, for the whole world. And I, I think Millard Fuller's philosophy of providing housing goes well beyond just a house. We have, or I have anyway, close relationship with some of the st- children that grew up in the Milledgeville houses. They're off to college. I spoke to one of our homeowners yesterday and I asked about her son and she told me how he had transferred to a local Georgia university now and had sent her his midterm grades, which were all A's. A's, I think she said he had one B. He grew up in a Habitat home, single mom, three siblings, but I think that's just one story of many of the children who grew up on our military habitat homes, and there's over 25 or 30 of them. Yeah, No, not everybody went off to college, but they're all, for the most part, turning out to be good, productive citizens. And, and that has something to say for the core of a safe habitat, a home for children. And I think that's how we need to look at it. These are homes for our children, no, not so much our adults. That automatically falls in place. Millard Fuller's early venture to build these houses was not an easy challenge. He faced racism up and down, in and out, every which way. They burned houses that they built. There was so much vandalism. People in that area, the south, where he started building these houses, 
in Americas did not prescribe to the fact that we should be helping minorities, we should not be helping black people and African Americans, and and they burnt down this house. And I think Dr. Salster can speak more to that than I could. Well, actually, the first house we built here was vandalized. We had a lot of damage done. Sometimes the uh, equipment was stolen. There were folks that didn't appreciate what we were doing at all. And we did get some threatening phone calls at the time. But I just took the attitude that this is just an obstacle and we'll overcome it and move on. We have, we can't let this sort of thing discourage us. Well, there's that sense that if people are not at you for whichever means they're using, then you're not doing something right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break right now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're previewing the upcoming Times Talk entitled, How Has Habitat for Humanity Affected Local Housing Needs? I'm talking with Dr. John Salstrom. He is a founding board member and an emeritus member of the local board for the Habitat for Humanity of Milledgeville and Baldwin County. We're also talking with the executive director of Milledgeville's local Habitat for Humanity, and he is Morali Thermal. We'll be right back with more Georgia Commons Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you're just joining us, we're celebrating another in our series of collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to you, our radio audience. Of course, the Times Talk takes place in its live format at noon each Wednesday in the Georgia College Library. Tonight, we're previewing the upcoming Times Talk, which is entitled... How Has Habitat for Humanity Affected Local Housing Needs? I'm joined in the WRGC studios by the Executive Director of the Local Habitat for Humanity, Milledgeville, Baldwin County. That's Morale Thermal. And Dr. John Salstrom, he is a founding board member of the Local Habitat for Humanity. He is an emeritus board member, but he's also an emeritus professor here at Georgia College as well. As we were leaving out in that last segment, I believe we were talking about some of the ways that being a homeowner can instill something in the individual. Shall we say it creates a a better sense of engagement with the community that they're in. Um, It also has other effects of making them taxpayers and more engaged citizens in the the kind of civic aspect of their government. Uh, But I thought that also perhaps created an opportunity for us to talk about some misperceptions. We all talked about some of the initial challenges to Habitat's work here in Milledgeville, but also some of the a reaction to Habitat's work in America's Georgia when it was founding. And so I thought we'd talk about what are some of the misperceptions people have about the work that y'all do? I think the biggest misperception is that we are giving houses away free to people that really don't deserve them. And that's far from the truth. Everyone who gets a house has to put what we call sweat equity into it. They have to work on the house themselves with others. They also have to make payments on the house. The only thing is we don't charge interest, so the houses are affordable. They do have to have other neighbors help with, as well. So it's not a giveaway program by any means. And the people that 
get these houses. They're vetted ahead of time. We have to make sure that they actually can afford them and that they'll keep up the payments. They're not allowed to just get a house and then not pay for it. If they don't pay for it, sometimes we have to foreclose on it. So it's a program that requires responsibility all along. But I think it builds that sense and gives them a sense of pride of ownership that's very valuable. Another misperception is that people think, well, we're just white people feeling guilt and trying to build houses to assuage their guilt. Well, maybe we have some guilt, but that's not the real reason. If you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it does you no good. So we're trying to build houses to help people give them a a hand up, not a hand out, as the uh, phrase goes. And I can't agree more with Dr. Salstrom's comments for sure. I I think that's the number one misconception is that we are taking money from rich white people and giving away houses to the rest of the minority community, which is the farthest thing from the truth. These people are well vetted and and not everybody's getting a house just because they made an application for a house. As I said before, there's a great need, but Habitat, the model is such that it doesn't give the house or sell the house to anybody and everybody. If you're making well over the area median income and you can go and borrow money at a lending institution such as a bank, then you don't qualify for a Habitat house. If you're over 80% of area median income, go to the bank. I'm sorry you have bad credit, but that's your responsibility. The demographic that we sell houses to are those that above 40% of area median income and below 60% of area median income who may have a credit score of 640 or 650 and, and are unable to go to a good lending institution and borrow money. We look at their credit reports. We, we make sure that they have managed their money well. If we see a short flaw or a, a small setback that has really messed up their life, and it happens in life, we, those of us on the show may not have had that problem, and our listeners may not have had that problem, but many people get into hardships, whether it's for medical reasons, mismanagement, education costs a fortune, which it should not. These things really land people in bad financial situations. But these habitat applicants, if they have done everything within their control in the best way they knew how, then we will accommodate them. And we sell those houses to them. We don't give it away. It's an equal playing field. Anybody, any race, any gender, anybody of any national origin status, legal or illegal, may apply. But there are other laws that will also apply. So if you don't qualify on all legal grounds, then no, you you don't qualify for a habitat home. But no, race is absolutely not one of those criteria. We build homes for all demographics, including those with physical handicaps. and We accommodate those special needs as we build these houses if needed. We actually make sure that our houses are built to a much better standard or a higher standard than code. We've seen this throughout natural disasters in the country where habitat homes tend to withhold storms and and hurricanes and tornadoes much better than their neighborhood peers. So the houses are strong, and it's a level playing field for applicants. I think we should emphasize, too, that there's no religious discrimination. Habitat is a Christian organization, but it welcomes volunteers from all religions or people that have no religion. 
and we certainly don't sell houses based on religious uh, considerations either. Absolutely, and the current Habitat Directory is not even a Christian, but he's been here for seven years, and that would be myself, and that's not been a discriminatory point at all. It's hard to fathom that, and I know it does, but we do build houses in in primarily Muslim countries, primarily Buddhist countries, primarily Hindu countries uh, around the globe, and that's never been an issue. We don't proselytize and make that part of the requirement for people to have a home to follow the faith of the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's never been the case uh, and never will be, hopefully. But no, we, we have a lot more to be thankful for to have a more diverse Habitat family than that is singularly monochromatic. And we have had faith-built houses where religious groups will get together, various churches or organizations within churches will get together and build. In fact, I think uh, one of the houses was built almost entirely by a First United Methodist Church. They've built more than one house. I would say that uh, they've supported so much uh, over the years. And we've had other churches, too, that have supported us very much. Uh, and, and and their heart is in it. Uh, and not, not just white churches, either. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It has happened again, and we're out of time for this segment. And so we're going to take that opportunity for a second short break of the program. If you're just joining us, we're talking about Habitat for Humanity. My guests today, Morali Thermal and John Solstrom, will be leading the next Times Talk conversation, which is entitled, How Has Habitat for Humanity Affected Local Housing Needs? There'll be facilitating that conversation tomorrow at noon in the Georgia College Library as part of the American Democracy Project at Georgia College's Times Talk Conversation. Uh, Stay tuned and we'll continue our conversation here on Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you are just joining us, of course, this is one of our series of collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversation to you, our radio audience. But it is also the invitation to come out and join the discussion, which takes place at noon on Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. This Wednesday, the conversation is, how has Habitat for Humanity affected local housing needs? I'm joined in the WRGC studio by Dr. John Salstrom, Emeritus Professor at Georgia College, but also a founding board member of the local Habitat for Humanity, Milledgeville, Baldwin County. We're also joined by the Executive Director of that local Habitat for Humanity, Morali Thermal. Now, we commonly think about Habitat and we think about building new houses, but that's not the only way that y'all affect the issue of housing and shelter in our country and well beyond its borders. How else does Habitat work in this area of housing? So the new house product was our, it's our crown jewel and our number one product. Everybody wants a new house. Well, post-recession, as as building materials were off the charts and, and housing production sort of came to a standstill, 
across the country. Habitat International looked at the product line and said, hey, what else can we do? And one of the things that came rising out of those conversations was community development, and they branded it as neighborhood revitalization. And that's something that we have really enjoyed doing in Milledgeville, certainly, and, and being a convener at the table and, and being able to facilitate some of the conversation about what we can do for not just building a new house, but how can we help some of the houses that exist there but are unable to sort of maintain and, and do those kind of things. So along those lines, we've also launched another program called Aging in Place, and that's primarily for people who are 55 or older and, and are wanting to live in their houses, live in a home with a caregiver uh, to see how we can help them maintain a home that is generally geared towards aged-based facilitation such as ramp buildings so they don't have to negotiate steps, thresholds in houses are trip hazards to kind of eliminate those, grab bars in, in bathtubs and areas where they can get in and out of. So really focusing on a lot on our seniors uh, in those houses and we have a continuously aging population and uh, that's one of the products that we have had great success with and in the last fiscal year, we've c completed 21 of those projects. And those things sort of fall under the radar because they're not as sexy to report on. So you don't really get the traction that a new house would. Everybody sees that new house being built. But yeah, community development and, and aging in place, weatherization, uh, rehabilitating homes that exist there, those are also some things. It's a product that's done. It's not a brand new house, but in our portfolio, we have at least two houses that were rehabilitated and, and sold to uh, individual homeowners. When I think back on my home ownership experience, we, uh, as people who made above the median, people who are, you know, this is radio, uh, you know, white, heterosexual couple, you know, we even ourselves qualified for federal programs because of our community. We're in a rural community, so we were able to qualify for first-time homeowner uh, subsidies that made it extremely affordable for us to um, become homeowners. I'm curious about... When we think about our local community, what is going on here, how is that an anecdote or indicative of the larger question of home ownership in these United States? Well, I think that is a very good question. I think our biggest challenge right now is the average citizen is not able to earn enough money to afford a home. $7 and something and minimum wage is not going to buy you a house even if you work more than your 40 hour a week. And I think that's the national conversation is that the wages that are earned by the average person who needs a affordable space cannot afford that house because cost of living is going through the roof, but wages are not. And so when you can't meet that basic needs, then you can't afford a place to live. Locally, the house that you would rent, which would be an average two-bedroom, two-bathroom house, costs over $500 to rent, while our 1,000-square-foot habitat house, mortgage, and escrows is very much less than $400 a month. So, yes, the, the, we make the numbers work, but you have to be able to qualify for those homes. And because there's not enough earning capacity, 
at minimum wage, which of course in this part of the country, minimum wage is less than minimum wage. And I say that especially for those wait, waiters, waiting staff in restaurants who make $2 and something, it's just unsustainable. And so the formula is terribly skewed and not in favor of these people who need the housing. It's a very complicated process, and there are many factors that have to be considered. And Habitat can't solve the problem on its own. We're going to need the help of uh, society at large to address all of these issues that Morales has been mentioning. And I think that brings us full circle back to the cost of home policy shift that we are continuing to push through the federal and national conversation. And I think if we have an election coming up, uh, and I hope and pray that we can bring housing as a forefront conversation uh, during the next election cycle. And how can audience members who are hearing this tonight engage in this conversation with y'all, engage in the work that you're doing here, or perhaps engage in a conversation that's not just focused on our local community? In other words, how can they get involved in Habitat? Military Habitat is a one-person show right now, and we can use all the volunteer help that we can get. But most importantly, we can also use the dollars, and I think there are many ways that we have advertised to give towards our mission locally. But I think the biggest conversation or the biggest contribution our listener can actually have is the very conversation we are having now to keep affordable housing as just as equally important as education and healthcare uh, when they have that conversation with the elected officials, uh, family members. I, I think the rest automatically follows. I would just like to say, too, that I've been very impressed over the years that many of my colleagues on the faculty, as well as many students, have been involved. In fact, Morale was a student. He was uh, president of our alumni association, and he's been able to get many of our current students involved in uh, Habitat projects. We have a Habitat campus chapter, and uh, there have been many other students, honor students, as, uh, for example, who've been involved in Habitat over the years. So I think there are many ways in which faculty, students, and other people in the community can get involved, and I hope they will do so. Of course, being informed about the issue is the first step, but then taking action is the second step. I just finished telling you that it's a one-person operation, but I, in all honesty, I don't think without Georgia College and without GMC's support and their various uh, volunteer cores and faculty and student projects through that come through Habitat, we would uh, we would be able to sustain ourselves. So I have to put in a plug-in for both the colleges in town that have been very supportive of us. In, now, as we look towards the conversation y'all will be having tomorrow at the Times Talk, what do you hope your audience takes away from that conversation? We hope they'll take the whole conversation with them, but I think uh, <laughs> we have a very smart population of both students, faculty, staff, and public uh, I think uh, um, we would like for them to drive this issue to the ballot box, if you will. Pay close attention uh, to your candidates who support housing and, and those much-needed issues first. Everything else will follow. And Dr. Salton just pointed out that healthcare is an issue, but it's directly connected to housing. Uh, and I think if you solve one, you tend to solve the other. Raleigh Thermal. Dr. John Salstrom, I want to thank you all for joining me today on this Time Stock edition of Georgia College Connections. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been my pleasure. 
You've been listening to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we are continuing our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. This conversation will take place live tomorrow at noon in the Georgia College Library. Of course, this talk is entitled, How Has Habitat for Humanity Affected Local Housing Needs? My guests today, Morali Thermal and Dr. John Salstrom, will facilitate that conversation again at noon in the Georgia College Library. On behalf of WRGC 88.3 FM, I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.